Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Washington and the Constitution by Peter Lilliback from our audio collection titled The Secular Jihad. You can find the rest of the talks fresh and brand new on the Canon app. Thank you. It's a great privilege to continue to be with you. I'm talking in my last uh, discussion about Washington and the Constitution. Uh, we've heard uh, some great discussions on the Bill of Rights, which is, as we've learned, a second constitutional convention uh, taking on the issues of governance. Now, Washington is important for a number of reasons. First of all, he not only is the first president who acted under the Constitution, but he was actually the one who presided at the Constitutional Convention. But it's even more important to understand that he probably was one of the leading voices that called for a new form of government, or at least an improvement on the existing form of government called the Articles of Confederation. When you tell the story of Valley Forge, and I don't suppose many of you remember the fact that I actually lectured on Valley Forge a year ago, but if some of you do, thank God for your great memory. But when you go through the incredible sufferings that the American army experienced in that cold winter in the uh, early time of the Revolutionary War, you can understand why Washington was convinced that the American form of government as it was known was inadequate. His men nearly starved to death. They froze to death. They were constantly unable to bring sufficient munitions to bear against the enemy. And in many cases, it was not because there was inadequate sources. It's because the states were so competitive that they said, let's don't give what we have unless someone else thinks they don't have to give. You know how that works out? You kind of hold back because someone else needs to do their part. And they were trying to make sure that they didn't get any state got over uh, stripped of its resources by the needs of the army. As a result, the army suffered. And Washington's conclusion was, we need a stronger central government. He recognized, and we're going to see this in a moment, how dangerous power itself is. But he said there's inadequate power. So there was a fine balancing act. And Washington, therefore, was very much a moving force for the Constitution. He not only presided over it, was elected under the Constitution, but he called for it. And in his writings, we find a description and the use of the word in different forms of constitution some 400 times. So you can see it was a very important issue. In fact, in one of his important documents, and in fact, it's the very one I quoted from yesterday where we find the words, the wall of words, the mound of parchment that can be jumped over by people who've lost their moral compass. In that same document, he mentions that he had read every published document that had addressed the issue of the Constitution. That's quite a statement. There was a lot of material, and Washington said, I've read it all. That was in that same letter he was sending, at least thinking about sending to Congress. And so what he was saying is, I have become a political scientist. I know the arguments. I've read the material. And so it's astounding to me how little any of us really know about what Washington had to say about the Constitution. 
He was under it. He called for it. He was the leader of its development, and he read everything, he says, that was published about it. Well, what do we need to know about Washington himself as we try to take on the discussion of Washington's view of the Constitution? Well, I think a good place to start would be to consider what he said when he called the first uh, day of Thanksgiving into uh, the American experience. Remember, the Constitution is now at work. And on October 3rd, 1789, he said, it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. Now, those words are striking for several reasons. First of all, he now is acting under the Constitution. He is the president of this new nation. And he says that the law that governs him as the president in no way diminishes a higher law that is a law to God himself that creates a universal duty to all nations. And this brings us to the point that Washington clearly understood that the Constitution did not create a divine state. It created a representative government under a God who was to be acknowledged by every nation on the face of the earth. And therefore, one of his first actions as president was to call the entire nation to remember not only to be thankful, but they were to obey his will. Washington understood that the law of God was still the law of Americans, even though there was now a constitutionally established government. It did not set aside a higher law. In fact, in his first inaugural address, he said these remarkable words, the sacred fire of liberty and the destiny of the Republican model of government are justly considered as deeply, perhaps as finely staked on the experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. That's from those words, of course, I named the book Sacred Fire a phrase right from Washington. And as we look at this topic of Washington and the Constitution, I want you to remember that he called this experiment and the Republican model of government as something that was possible because God himself had given liberty to the people of America. He did not call it the secular fire of liberty. He didn't just speak of the fire of liberty, that it's a passion that burns in our hearts. He said it was sacred. It was a gift that had been given from God. Now, if you know classical literature, you may remember the story of Prometheus. Remember Prometheus, the man who stole fire from the gods? Washington said, we didn't steal this fire of liberty from heaven as autonomous beings that can rule ourselves without reference to some deity. He said, it's a gift that God has given. And so when I try to think through the idea of the Constitution, what Washington and his fellow founders gave to Americans, I like to think of it as a sacred fire that needs to be distinguished from a wild fire. Washington on at least three occasions will say that we must distinguish liberty from license. Licentiousness and liberty are two different things. Liberty is the ability to understand that we have freedoms that are accorded to us from God. 
His law governs over us in that Blackstonian sense that we talked about, and that we are free within this law, just as, to use a humble illustration, we are free to go anywhere as long as we keep our car on the road. As soon as you decide you're going to cross the river where there's no bridge because you want to take a shortcut, when you exercise that freedom, your liberty has become license. You're saying the laws of hydrodynamics and the laws of gravity don't work on my car. I'm free to do whatever I want. That license creates stalemates and will probably cost you your vehicle and you're not going to get to your destination. When you go the long, difficult road of following the road and crossing the bridge where it is, you get to the other side and you have now exercised liberty and you've denied license. And that law and liberty work together. We have an example in history of wildfire, of liberty turning into license, or the contagion of liberty, as it's been called by one writer of the American Revolutionary Era. It says that it's when liberty just loses its boundaries and control and it runs free. That's what happened in the French Revolution, where we don't need God, where we are absolutely free in our own democratic societies to establish the law that we want. And you remember that in the cathedrals of France, they enshrined idols to this reason that was going to govern them. Lo and behold, the goddess of reason wanted blood sacrifices, and she received a great deal. And it was through the guillotine. As anyone that would speak against the democratic societies found, there was not free speech. There was not true liberty. There was liberty that required some control. It was the control of the despot that would come to power. And so this anarchy and all of this bloodletting required finally a despot of tyrannical powers. And the empire of Napoleon was established to bring order. That's wildfire. Washington said, I want to give you an understanding of the sacred fire of liberty. We have forgotten this, but the world had never quite seen what Washington modeled. When he took the powers, the reins of government under the Constitution, led the government with kingly-like powers, and then gave them away freely, without a war, without a conflict. He said, I've served my period of time. I now step down and let the next person lead. That transition of power, which we have seen consistently throughout American history, and we take for granted is just what we do. It was a miracle. It was an experiment. It was the sacred fire of liberty that had been entrusted to the American people. And Washington said, I can have this great power and then I freely give it away because it's not mine to keep. And he modeled for us the idea that there is law that governs this liberty and power. Now, how did we get that? How did this come about so that we take for granted that you don't have to fight a civil war every four years? You fight with ballots, not with bullets. You're able to put together this kind of legacy of liberty that is restrained and passed on to the next duly elected person. Well, begin, in my humble estimation, with taking seriously mankind's sinfulness. The whole notion of the Constitution is saying that we are going to limit everybody's power for everybody's good. Everybody is going to have a defined sphere of authority, and they cannot go beyond it. 
Now, the reason for this is because of man's inherent sinfulness. There's a remarkable quote where Washington is writing to a family member named Lund Washington, and he says this, if this should be the case, it will be only adding to the many proofs we daily see of the folly of leaving bargains unbound by solemn covenants. I see so many instances of the rascality of mankind that I'm almost out of conceit of my own species. And I'm convinced that the only way to make men honest is to prevent their being otherwise by tying them firmly to the accomplishment of their contracts. Now, he wrote that many years before the United States Constitution. He was just a business guy writing to a family member. And he said, do you see how people always cheat? How they're always looking out for their own best interest? They say they're going to do something and they never follow through? He said, we need a word for it. It's the rascality of mankind. I don't think I'd ever heard that word before. I said, that's a good word. It's another word for human depravity. It's the noun form of a rascal. You rascality type people out there, Washington says, you need to be bound by solemn covenants. That's a word that comes right out of the Scottish Reformation. John Knox was involved with solemn covenants. And he says, we need to do that. And another case where he's addressing this issue, he's writing now to his brother. And listen to what he says. Since my arrival at this place where I came at the request of Congress to settle some matters relative to the ensuing campaign, I received your letter. To form a new government requires infinite care and unbounded attention. For if the foundation is badly laid, the superstructure must be bad too. Much time, therefore, cannot be bestowed in weighing and digesting matters well. We have no doubt some good parts in our present constitution, many bad ones we know we have. Wherefore, no time can be misspent that is employed in separating the wheat from the tares. A nice biblical allusion there. My fear is that you will get tired and homesick the consequence of which will be that you'll patch up some kind of constitution as defective as the present. This should be avoided. Every man should consider that he is lending his aid to frame a constitution which is to render millions happy or miserable, and that a matter of such moment cannot be the work of a day. He was talking about the Virginia State Constitution. He was talking about this as he was in the midst of the American Revolution. His brother was going to be creating a new constitution for the state of Virginia. And he says, you need to understand, we desperately need a wise form of government. Because not only do we have the problem of human rascality, depravity, but we also have a covenantal understanding that what we do here We do for millions of unborn people that are going to be under the rules that we establish for them. So the first thing that we must understand is that in Washington's mind, he recognized early on that human beings will not do what they're supposed to do unless there's enough power to control them. And secondly, to create a system of such control requires tremendous wisdom because it's going to not only control this generation, but the ones that will follow. And so how do we do all of this? Well, ultimately, when Washington found himself at the end of the war, going back home to Mount Vernon, 
and seeing the Articles of Confederation continuing to be inadequate to lead the nation, he continued to argue and call for the development of a constitutional convention. And it wasn't quite called that yet. There was really the hope that they could make the Articles of Confederation work, but they quickly, behind closed doors, said it's not going to happen. And so they set it aside and began the process of, in secret, creating a whole new form of government for the United States. Now, his very first act was to say, let us raise a banner to which the wise and good may repair. The entire matter is now in the hands of God. So basically, he said, we are doing this under God. We are asking God's blessing to help us. And as he presided, the whole process of the Constitution that limited human power because of human depravity was developed. I'm not going to read that quote again, but I mentioned that yesterday on page 1015, note 21 of uh, the Sacred Fire volume. He tells us that ultimately, no constitution is enough unless the human heart is able to obey the laws that are put for them. And that's why I think that we must understand that Washington, not only on the day of Thanksgiving, reminded America that they have to be able to obey the law of God and be thankful to him. That is their duty if we are going to have a government that is really what we want it to be. But he also reminded Americans as he stepped down from government of the danger of thinking that we can create an autonomous government through a constitution that will work. That was one of the theories that was floating around that it is not a sacred fire of liberty. It's just a fire of liberty that we can make for ourselves. And so he says this in his farewell speech. I alluded to it in an earlier text, but let me read it at greater length now. As he writes his farewell address, he says, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. Now let's stop for just a moment and think about what he said. We've learned that Jefferson had his wall of separation between church and state. Washington spoke about the wall of words in the Constitution, keeping liberty away from human depravity. Here he addresses, if you will, the Jeffersonian metaphor. I don't think he was conscious of it, of course. But for him, there's not to be a wall of separation so much between church and state, but there's to be a floor that is to separate church and state. Not a wall, but a floor. It's an interesting idea. He says that religion, the work of the church, morality, the fruits of the work of the church, are the indispensable supports of the Constitution. He said, you need to understand that the Constitution is not about the church. We're going to talk about that more in a moment. He clearly did not want to have an established religion. But he said, you need to understand that the Constitution has a weak floor. It will cave in. Termites will come along and rot it out. And so you have to have supports underneath to hold it up. And there are two pillars that must be there. And his metaphor is the pillar of religion and the pillar of morality that will create a constitution that will therefore govern the rascality of mankind, the depravity of mankind. And so for him, the question is then, how do we put the constitution and religion together? And that's what we want to focus on now. 
Washington was in favor of the Constitution because he realized we needed a government that was stronger, a government that would work with limiting human depravity. And the only way that he could see it was by bringing legitimately religion and morality into the matrix of constitutional government without creating a tyranny where there was an established church. Now, how did he do this? Well, let's listen to some of the remarkable ideas that Washington presents for us. First of all, he understands that human depravity is a huge issue. But he understands that the Constitution has to deal not only with religious people, but with religious groups. Okay, so one of the things I want to do is to share with you a few of the letters that were sent to him as he became to be the new president. The first presbytery of the eastward that included clergy from Massachusetts and New Hampshire, and they were also connected, obviously, with the, the congregational church as friends, but these were the Presbyterians of New England. These New Englanders wrote a letter to Washington. Listen to what they said. Whatever any may have supposed wanting in the original plan, that is in the Constitution, they said, we don't think it got all the things we needed, said, we are happy to find so wisely provided in its amendments. He said, we're glad to see that we're trying to complete the things we need in the Constitution. And it says, and it is with peculiar satisfaction, we behold how easily the entire confidence of the people and the man who sits at the helm of government, that's Washington, they're talking about him, has eradicated every remaining objection to its form. Now let's, un let's translate that into modern English. They said, we want to tell you, President Washington, that there were great misgivings that we had as Presbyterians from New England as the Constitution came into power. We were afraid, but our fears have been assuaged because we see what you have been doing with the mantle of government upon your shoulders. Now they go on. Among these, we never considered the want of a religious test, that grand engine of persecution in every tyrant's hand. They said, we are not worried that our constitution doesn't have a test of religion before you can serve. Because it says it doesn't matter what religious test you have, a tyrant will cause people to suffer. Presbyterians were saying, we're glad there's no Presbyterian test in the Constitution to lead. We don't want it. It will be turned even against other Presbyterians eventually. We don't want it. That's a tool of, of tyranny. But, they say, but we should not have been alone in rejoicing to have seen some explicit acknowledgement of the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent inserted somewhere in the Magna Carta of our country. Okay, these Presbyterians said we would have really been happy if somewhere in this document it had said, we are committed to the honoring of Jesus Christ. We don't find his name in the Constitution. By the way, let me just do a little segue for a moment. I was debating an atheist some time ago on a radio show, and I had one of those moments where I thought I could seize the high ground. And in this debate, I said, are you as an atheist willing to declare this to be the year of our Lord 2004? And she said, of course not. I would not use that language. So I said, you're afraid of people that use in the year of our Lord because that somehow honors Christianity. She said, absolutely. And I won't do it. 
And I said, well, are you aware of what the last words of the United States Constitution are when they first were drafted? There was a kind of a quiet pause for a moment. He says, it's in the year of our Lord, 1787. And I thought, now I had the high ground for just a moment. I said, you need to understand that our founding fathers were not so politically correct that they wanted to exclude the name of our Lord entirely from their discussions. They recognized that his rule in history was still at work when they gave the Constitution. So one of the things I want to emphasize is that it is still politically, constitutionally correct to say A.D. and B.C. when you date years. It's constitutional. It may not be politically correct, but it's politically constitutionally correct to say in the year of our Lord. So don't stop doing it. If you want to be magnanimous, say some of you say, you know, in the common era and before the common era, but we also say before Christ and in the year of our Lord, because that's constitutional and it's historically consistent. But be that as it may, our constitution does not directly address the name of Christ. And these Presbyterians are worried. And they said, our worries have been assuaged because we see what you have done in fulfilling this office. Now, let's keep on going as we hear their words. We are happy to find, however, that this defect has been amply remedied in the face of all the world by the piety and devotion in which your first public act of office was performed. That's when he got up and gave his inaugural address and talked about the sacred fire of liberty that had been entrusted to the American people. They said, understanding your commitment to honoring our Christian faith in public has allowed us to realize that Christianity will not be lost in our Constitution. Because of the piety and devotion in which your first public act of office was performed by the religious observance of the Sabbath and the public worship of God, of which you have set so eminent an example, and by the warm strains of Christian and devout affections, which run through your late proclamation for a general thanksgiving. They said, what you have shown us is that by your precedence as president, you have established the legitimacy of a full-orbed Christianity being at work in our constitutional governance. And so one of the remarkable things that you need to do in understanding this era is that the Presbyterian said, because Washington openly lived a Christian presidency and set a precedent for everyone thereafter, our Constitution has been completed in a defect that they were worried about. Now, I don't know what you will do with that, but that was our early Presbyterian forefathers addressing this. They go on to say, the Catholic spirit breathed in all your public acts supports us in the pleasing assurance that no religious establishments, no exclusive privileges tending to elevate one denomination of Christians to the depression of the rest shall ever be ratified by the signature of the president during your administration. On the contrary, we bless God that your whole deportment bids all denominations confidently to expect to find in you the watchful guardian of their equal liberties, the steady patron of genuine Christianity, and the bright exemplar of those peculiar virtues in which its distinguishing doctrines have their proper effect. Under the nurturing hand of a ruler of such virtues, and one so deservedly revered by all ranks, we joyfully indulge the hope 
that virtue and religion will revive and flourish, that infidelity and the vices ever attendant in its train will be banished from every polite circle, and that rational piety will soon become fashionable there and from thence be diffused among all other ranks in the community. Now, whether that was hopeful or wishful thinking, you can decide. But listen to what Washington said as he responded to this letter. He said, I am persuaded, you'll permit me to observe, that the path of true piety is so plain as to require but little political direction. He's writing to Presbyterians, and he actually says, you Presbyterians believe in the perspicuity of the scriptures, don't you? You believe in the plainness of the gospel truth. That one of your foundational tenets is that you don't need anybody to tell you what the Bible is trying to tell people in its fundamental fundamental message of the gospel. He said, that's why our constitution doesn't address religious things, because we're convinced that the gospel is absolutely clear. It's preached everywhere. It doesn't need to be put into some government document to tell you what the gospel is. He says, to this consideration, we ought to ascribe the absence of any regulation respecting religion from the Magna Carta of our country. So what does Washington expect to happen? He says, to the guidance of the ministers of the gospel, people like Doug Wilson and Steve Wilkins, let them talk about the gospel freely, and it will take care of itself. Let the ministers have free speech. Let them do their job. That's what our Constitution is all about, is to make sure that the ministers of the gospel will do their work. This important object is perhaps more properly committed to the ministers than to some government body. And so he says to the Presbyterians, it will be your care to instruct the ignorant and to reclaim the devious. He's now basically alluding to Matthew 18, to the councils of church discipline. He says, in the progress of morality of science, to which our government will give every furtherance, we may confidently expect the advancement of true religion and the completion of our happiness. What he was saying is, I'm glad that I have a constitution that does not direct us on religious issues, because man in their depravity will always abuse it. But I am showing you by my example and my express words that our government is to give religious freedom to the preachers of the gospel. And I'm going to make sure that everything I do advances true religion. And so what's remarkable, if you go back to that Thanksgiving message that we, or that proclamation that we alluded to that the Presbyterians mentioned, if you go into it a little bit further, it not only says it is the duty of every nation to give thanks to God, to obey his will, but he goes on to say, we must confess our sins to the Lord of nations and seek his forgiveness. Do you know what the phrase Lord of nations is? It's a biblical phrase for Jesus Christ. Study your Bible, Lord of nations. That's referring to Jesus. In his first Thanksgiving address, George Washington called on America to ask for forgiveness of sins to the Lord of nations, Jesus Christ, and called on the whole world to remember they have a duty to obey his law. That is why our Constitution is balanced by the one who gave it its first expression. That's why we as Americans need to keep Washington in our orbit. That's why in the culture wars, 
There's been such an incredible effort to make sure that everybody knows that Washington is a deist. Because when you reclaim Washington as a Christian, he gives us the first public expression of what religion looks like under our Constitution. He tells us in his Christianity that we don't have any religious tests, but Christianity can flourish in its fullness with a Christian president encouraging Christianity in the public square. That is why I wrote this book. It is to give us back Washington, who gives us back our rightful place as Christian activists in the public square. Washington created the public square. And he said, I want you to know that it is my goal in all that I'm doing to call all the nations to obey the will of this God, to seek forgiveness of sins from the Lord of nations, and to remind you I'm here to encourage ministers of the gospel to do their work so that true religion might flourish in this land. Now, you know what? No deist would have said any of that stuff. The Presbyterians, were they so foolish that they would have looked at a deist president and called him the bright exemplar of the Christian religion? He belongs to us. We need to take him back. And in taking him back, we establish the high ground of the culture war that says this is our story. I th like the illustration that uh, I think it's Bill Federer has done in one of his writings. He said the story of religious and liberty in America is something like this. There are some people that fled from religious persecution and they came to America and they got it. And when others wanted to come and share it with them, they fought it. They said, you can't have it. And we've continued to learn how to expand religious liberty to give it to others until finally we were so magnanimous in expanding religious liberty that we even gave it to the people who denied the very source of this liberty. That is God himself. And now what's happened, having given that liberty that broadly, the people that we gave it to last are trying to kick the rest of us out of the nation who started it. That's what's happened. We need to say, wait a second. You're allowed to be against God. You're allowed to be against religion. But you're not allowed to root out the very fabric that created this nation, which is rights that come from God, rights that limit government's power and limit your depravity to harm me. And we reclaim that when we understand the balance of religion in Washington's precedence as president under the Constitution that allowed for this dynamic kind of Christianity. Now, we need to hasten along in your outline. You can see I've spent a lot of time in the, what I've called the completion of our happiness. Well, basically, Washington said, this happiness is mine too. It's the happiness of my own soul. It's the happiness of my own quest for religion. Well, the presidential sermon, the first inaugural address is remarkable because it tells us about this sacred fire. And as Washington tries to talk about this holy fire of liberty that's been given to the American people, other religious bodies start writing to him. And it's a fascinating study. There's something like, I'm rounding it off now, maybe 20 different religious groups that write religious letters to Washington. It includes... Jewish people, it includes Presbyterians, it includes Methodists, it includes Masonic groups, it includes Swedenborgians. As far as I can tell, there's no atheist or deist group that ever wrote to Washington. I almost wish there had been one so we could say what he would have said to them. But you know what he says to every one of these religious groups? 
He said, your religious liberties are secure under the Constitution. All of them hear that. They're all free. But in special cases, such as those that have a biblical Christianity, he'll talk about how he's committed to the true religion and wanting to make sure that vital, genuine religion or the true spirit of Christianity or the true Christian will do his proper role. Washington is basically becoming a counselor to Christians and saying, in your religious liberty, use it well to advance the Christian faith. Again, exercising his idea of a proper witness. This is so much so that Washington actually will get another letter from Presbyterians. And since I'm a Presbyterian, I like to emphasize Presbyterianism, and you all don't share that tradition with me. But I want you to know that the early Presbyterians looked at Washington in office and saw him as one who was balancing this constitution that didn't address religious issues and informing it with a religion that was very Christian, giving a model for all the successive administrations to follow. Listen to what the Presbyterians wrote now from the one of the very earliest general assemblies. Now, you might want to ask, how did the first general assembly in America come into being? Well, some guy named John Witherspoon had something to do with it. Remember who John Witherspoon was? One of the most religious, reformed, Calvinistic founders of our nation. John Witherspoon and those that represented him from the general assembly, the Presbyterians, wrote a letter to Washington and listen to what they said. We adore... Almighty God, the author of every perfect gift, who hath endued you, Washington, with such a rare and happy assemblage of talents as hath rendered you equally necessary to your country in war and in peace. The influence of your personal character moderates the division of political parties. Your present elevated station by the voice of a great and free people and with an unanimity of suffrage that has Few, if any, examples in history saying no one else that we know has ever been elected by the people unanimously to be president. But you've done it. You're unique in all of history. Their confidence is in your virtues. We derive a presage even more flattering from the piety of your character. It's amazing how many people today writing on Washington say he was not a pious man. Here's the Presbyterian General Assembly writing to him and saying, the thing that we love most about you is the piety of your life that everyone constantly addresses as a unique part of your character. They say this, a steady, uniform, avowed friend of the Christian religion who has commenced his administration in rational and exalted sentiments of piety and who in his private conduct adorns the doctrines of the gospel of Christ and on the most public and solemn occasions devoutly acknowledges the government of divine providence. The examples of distinguished characters were ever, will ever possess a powerful and extensive influence on the public mind. And when we see in such a conspicuous station the amiable example of piety to God, a benevolence to men, and of a pure and virtuous patriotism, we naturally hope that it will diffuse its influence and that eventually the most happy consequences will result from it. I ask myself, were these Presbyterians utterly deceived or blind? Or did they understood that the Constitution could not be properly interpreted without the virtuous, pious, Christian life and leadership of the first president who informed its message? 
Might I humbly lay before you that Washington's character, life, and teaching are absolutely essential to understand what the First Amendment ought to look like in America. He was living out its message from its highest place of leadership. And he said, Christianity is fully open to be practiced by the president of our country. And that is how Christianity will be properly balanced in a constitution that can be a wall of words alone, just a mound of parchment. We need to have godly leaders that are committed to Christianity. Now, Washington, therefore, as we conclude, was a man committed to nonpartisanship. He wanted to promote the general good. He was always against partisan politics. He said, I never was a party man. Wherever I found parties, I always sought to reconcile them. He tried to lead for the common good, for the great whole, a phrase that he uses again and again. But what he tells us as we conclude our study is that if we are going to have a constitutional government that does the following things, bridles human depravity, does not give an engine of a religious test to the tyrant to bludgeon people, that makes sure that true religion can flourish, we need to have not only our constitution, but we need to have a leader that shows us how these godly values come together. Washington says the way this will happen is that we will have two indispensable political supports, a vital religion and a morality that is self-governing in character. And when we have these things, Washington, then I will conclude, says we'll have a great asylum. We will have a place for religious liberty where people will be able to come from all different traditions and exercise the freedom of their conscience. I'm going to conclude with this last quote, Washington again writing. This now is actually a passage that he gives to us at the end of the Revolutionary War as he begins to consider what the future of the United States might be like as he talks about this fire of liberty that will create an asylum for the oppressed of the religions of the world. In 1783, he said this, While the general recollects the almost infinite variety of scenes through which we have passed with a mixture of pleasure, astonishment, and gratitude, while he contemplates the prospects before us with rapture, he cannot help wishing that all the brave men of whatever condition they may be, who shared in the toils and dangers of effecting this glorious revolution, of rescuing millions from the hand of oppression, and of laying the foundation of a great empire, might be impressed with a proper idea of the dignified part they have been called to act under the smiles of providence on the stage of human affairs. For happy, thrice happy shall they be pronounced hereafter, who have contributed anything, who performed the meanest office in erecting this stupendous fabric of freedom and empire on the broad basis of independency, who have assisted in protecting the rights of human nature and establishing an asylum for the poor and oppressed of all nations and religions. What Washington said America was all about was to create a place where freedom was such that we would have the rights of being protected from a government that would persecute people because of their religion. That here we would all be free. And then when that constitution was drawn up, 
and its first president was put in office, he said, I want you to know that Christianity is something that will produce this kind of freedom, and we must help it grow, but we must never have a test of religion. And so John Witherspoon, to come back to him, said, how is it that we will have the growth of Christianity in America when we have no religious guidance from the Constitution itself? He said Christians must be active in government. They must be effective in their religious evangelism. They must be busy about doing the work of statecraft and churchcraft. They must do both. Because if we don't, the precedent and the great gift of our founders that has been given will be lost. You know what, he's, what, you know what our founders are saying to us? Christianity is the gift of our founders to us in a government that gives liberty. But liberty requires eternal vigilance because liberty will become license. Liberty will be lost. And how do we keep it? It's by you being a good citizen. It's by you being a good Christian. We need to be both. We're members of two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Christ. And of course, at the end of time, that great peon of praise to Christ as the kingdoms of this earth are now offered up to his glory. That's to be our life as Christian citizens. So as we conclude, what is the fundamental lesson I'd like you to take away from this lecture? Our constitution is inadequately interpreted until we see it lived out in the life of the first administration. And it shows us how religion and morality are indispensable supports to the floorboards of the Constitution. They're not the Constitution, but they support it. And you have to be part of those pillars. So I'm crying out for two things. Reclaim Washington for the Christian fold, because he belongs to us. In so doing, recognize then that as you do that, that you belong in the government process as a devout Christian. There's no inconsistency. John Witherspoon modeled that. George Washington gave you an administration that urged it. The question is, what will we do? Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. You can find the rest of the talks from Secular Jihad on the Canon app. Download it from your app store of choice and subscribe.